Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to take a break from the minor prophets. Um, I don't know about you, but I've had Nahum sort of ringing in my ears for this last week. Um, I have to tell you that that, um, that was a tough sermon last week, a tough one to preach, tough one to hear maybe. I, I want to say to you, though, I should have said this last week, I hope you understand that when you hear a loud, singular word of judgment like what you heard last week, those who are under the cross are safe. My great fear is that you would think, you who know Christ and love Christ, who have found refuge in Christ, my great fear is that you'd leave here ducking after hearing a word like that. But you don't need to duck you can go forth even even with a strong, strong pronouncement of warning like that, a word of judgment that's coming. You can go forth with great joy and confidence because, because you're safe in the place of refuge, in the eye of the storm, secure in the love and the embrace and the forgiveness, the security of sons and daughters. All of that comes to you because of Christ. So maybe I'm a week late in telling you that. Um, but I, but I sure want to begin by reminding you of that. And what I want to do this morning, actually, is sort of shift our focus. I want to look at Genesis 12. We'll get back to the minor prophets. But, but I want us to think about this building that we're building. And, and uh, I want to do that a few times over the course of the next few months because I'd like for us to sort of get ready for it, if you will. And as we think about that that building, there are four things that come out of this passage, and I'm going to tell you what they are, and then we'll read it, and then we'll look at them. Four things, probably among a whole lot of others, that come out of this passage. Four words that have application to who we are as a church, to what we're doing on that piece of property, and what God is doing in us and through us, and what we trust God will do as he uses that piece of property up there. Okay, four words. The first is recollection. Or remembering, remembering, recollection. The second is reclamation, reclaiming. The third is reconciliation. And the fourth is restoration. Those are the four words, the four ideas, okay? Remembering or or, uh, recollection, reclamation, reconciliation, and restoration. So see if you can find them. This is like, you know, for those of you who have those little children's books, you know, where you have to find the little character, where's Waldo? See if you can find these four ideas in this passage, okay? And we'll have fun, I think, finding them together. Chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, when, when he started his second career. That's not in the text. Okay. When he left Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan, And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, 
And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word. Let's pray for his spirit to help us understand and apply it. Let's pray, pray together. Lord, thank you for Abram, our father. Thank you for the promises that you gave to Abram, our father. Thank you for the remarkable thing that those of us in this room are first the fulfillment of those promises and then the means by which that fulfillment continues out into the nations. Lord Jesus, be with us as we think about your word. Encourage our hearts as we think about your word. Prepare us for the days that you have set before us, for the ministry that you have for us to do, for the work that you are doing in us and through us out into the world, we pray. Help us by your spirit, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so four things that come out of this passage, seems to me. First, recollection or remembering. This passage uh, teaches me to remember, to recollect. I don't know if you know this, but the two most frequently mentioned commands in all of Scripture, neither of which is found in this passage, but just, uh, just... as a couple of little data points, the two frequently mentioned commands in all of Scripture are do not be afraid and remember. Do not be afraid and remember. So in trying to remember here, we're only doing something that the Scriptures in numerous other places encourage us to do. And what we're remembering here, what we're recollecting here, is just this fact. It is the Lord God who called Abram, who set Abram on his journey, who led Abram, who took him from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran in Mesopotamia and then brought him into the land of promise. It's the Lord, the Lord God, who is behind that movement. It is the Lord God who says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. It is the Lord God who says, I will bless you and make your name great. It is the Lord God, the infinite personal God, God who is really there. We keep saying this over and over again. You don't see him. He's the invisible character. He's the invisible participant here. He's the invisible reality that defines all of the rest of reality, who upholds and sustains all of the rest of reality. It is that God who says to Abram, I will make your name great. And I will bless those who bless you so that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a familiar passage. But I want you to think of the scope of it. Just think of the scope of this passage. Here's one guy, Abram. One person living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Little geography lesson. Ur of the Chaldeans 
is down south toward the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It's down in the south of what is Iraq. And that's where he comes from. And he leaves that place, that little town or city or whatever it is, and he makes his way up the Euphrates. That's probably how he got from Ur to Haran. You know, they're surrounded by desert. I mean, if you've seen any film footage of what our troops had to go through when they went from Kuwait up through Iraq to the capital city of Iraq, it's all dust and sand and dirt. So the route had to have been for him to get from Ur up to Haran to just go along the river. And it was probably a thousand miles for him to make that trek from Ur up to Haran. And that's where God then calls Abram, this one guy, one person. Nobody knows about it. I mean, here he is. Everybody was migratory back in those days. They followed the waters. They just kind of went from place to place on camelback or on foot or however they got from one place to the other. Here's this one guy making his way hundreds of miles up the Euphrates River. And there's nobody else on the planet probably who has any idea what's going on with this guy. Right? He lives in obscurity. He's an anonymous character. CNN isn't following him around. Fox News isn't interested in him. Fox News is interested in Barack Obama. Fox News is interested in John McCain. Fox News is interested in the economic meltdown. All the major news outlets are concerned about those things. Nobody cares about Abram, who's got this wife and this nephew living in Haran. Obscurity. But look at what is in view. The nations are in view. One guy and the nations. It's preposterous viewed at a horizontal level. You know who was in view when God spoke to Abram? God said, I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a... Do you know who was in view when that promise was made? You. You. It'd be great to try to figure out from this group of people how many different nations are represented in this group of people. Who is in view when God makes that promise to Abram? People in Islamabad. People in Masoma, Tanzania, where I get to go. People in Paducah, Kentucky. People who have no connection to each other are all in view when the personal God who is really there makes this promise to Abram, promises to bless him and make him a blessing to the nations. All of the nations. You were in view. I was in view when that promise was made. Here's the thing we're remembering in the midst of this. The news outlets don't care about this. They never did, they don't, and they never will. Here's the thing we're remembering here. We're remembering that history belongs to God. I know it's corny. I know it's kind of silly to put it this way. But what we're remembering here is that history is his story. It's his story. 
It's the story of what he does. It's the story of what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. History is about God. History is about his purposes. History is about the fulfillment of those purposes. I know that everybody around us, rightly, rightly, everybody here and everybody around us, we all are concerned about John McCain and Barack Obama and economic matters and international policy matters and ethical issues and all of the rest of the things that make up the fabric of our day-to-day existence. We're concerned about these things. But, but let me just remind you again, forgive me if I'm saying this to you ad nauseum, but you need to remember it and I need to remember it and I need to be encouraged by it History at the end of the day is not about Barack Obama and John McCain. It just isn't. It's not about their purposes and their programs and everything else that they envision and dream and and all of the rest of that stuff. History is about the infinite personal God who was really there, who took a man out of obscurity, blessed him and said, you are going to be a blessing to all of the nations He said that to one person in all of human history, and that is Abram. And he brought it to fulfillment and completion in one other person, the one who is the fulfillment of that promise, as Paul makes clear in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. The seed of Abraham, who is Christ, and who is the promised blessing who by being that blessing in the midst of the nations becomes a blessing to all of the nations. That's what all of human history is about. Again, perhaps ad nauseum, but forgive me, I need to be remembered, you need to be, to be reminded. The basic architecture of history is creation and fall and then redemption, and we're in that third part of the story. We're in that third act of the play. Creation is the first. The fall is the second. And we're in the third, which is going to lead into the fourth, which is the consummation of all things in Jesus Christ. And in redemption, God makes promises, and he brings them to fruition and fulfillment in Christ, and not only in Christ, but through Christ into his church and out into the world. And it all started with Abram. It really started at Genesis 3.15. And the first promise that God made that he would send a warrior king who would conquer the evil one and destroy the works of the devil. And that promise gets enlarged and fulfilled over the centuries and the millennia. But all of it comes to completion and fulfillment in Christ and his people gathered from the nations. Think of history like an hourglass on its side. Okay? Everything moves down to the nexus, to the neck of the hourglass. And at the neck of the hourglass is the person of Jesus, the fulfillment of this promise made to Abram. But it doesn't stop there. From the nexus, from the neck, it moves out to the nations of the world. And it's one story tied together by this one theme of God's purpose in history to redeem, to restore all things in Jesus Christ. We need to remember that. We need to remember that our story, our story 
as we think about that building, as we think about that property, as we think about being there and worshiping there and all of the things we're going to do there, eating meals and taking care of children and having educational ministries and trusting that God, by His grace, is going to bring people to that building who don't know Jesus and there they're going to find something they've never found before. We need to remember that our little story is just a thread, a significant thread, but a thread in the fabric of this great story of which God is the author. And it's an unfolding story. It's been written. And we have the extraordinary privilege of being witnesses to the unfolding drama as it's played out. And not only being witnesses, but being participants. Hey, CNN isn't following me around. Fox News isn't following me around. But they weren't following Abram around either. And they didn't follow Jesus around either until the crowds got so big that they couldn't deny that something was going on with Jesus. It doesn't bother me that nobody pays attention to us. It doesn't bother me that nobody hears us of influence and importance and all of the rest. Because the thread of this story is woven into the fabric of the story of Almighty God who is accomplishing his purposes in the midst of the world in us and through us out into the world. And the great day is going to come when the real news report will be offered to the totality of humankind. And everything they missed, they're going to see with clarity. And God will get the glory. Got to remember that. Got to remember that. So recollection, that's the first thing. Second thing is reclamation. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 12. And Abram passed through the land to the place called Shechem, to the oak tree of Moreh. Isn't that interesting? A tree. I love that. A tree. Because it's significant in the program and purpose of God. A tree. And then this next phrase, verse 6, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And then verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. him. And then verse 8, From there he moved to the hill country in the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar. And he called upon the name of the Lord. Now what's the significance of that? Well, if you'd been a Canaanite and you had stumbled onto Abraham while he's there by the Oak of Moreh and he's building an altar. You know what an altar is? An altar is a thing of religious significance, right? It's significant that Abraham doesn't use a Canaanite altar, but he builds his own altar. If you're a Canaanite and you stumble onto Abraham while he's building this altar there in Canaan, You would be offended. You're asking, we're asking the question here, what's the significance of this? If you'd been a Canaanite and you'd seen Abram doing this, you would have asked the question, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing? This is is perhaps trivial and trite. But again, think about that piece of property. Imagine 
Imagine that after we took ownership of that piece of property, or perhaps even before we took ownership of that piece of property, we contracted with a bunch of folks who have heavy equipment. Jim Davis can do that sort of thing for us. And we said, okay, there's a seven-acre plot of ground at the corner of US 1 and 77th Street, and we want you to turn your machines loose. Just go in there and start clearing stuff out. Is it your property? No, it's not ours. Do you have permits? No, we don't. Just go do it. Well, okay. It's going to cost you twice what it otherwise would have cost you because I'm at risk in this thing. Just go do it. Well, the owners would come to us, the city authorities would come to us, the county authorities would come to us, and they would say, what do you think you're doing? Because they would look at that piece of property, the owners, and say, this doesn't belong to you. And the city and county authorities would say, you can't do that without permits. And if we're Abraham building an altar in Canaan under the oak of Moray, the response would be, the property doesn't belong to you. The property belongs to the Lord my God, and I am reclaiming it for him. That's the effect of this thing. When people built altars in this time, they built these things of religious significance with real dirt and real stone, and it was understood that there was a union between the dirt and the deity, the God who owned the dirt. And you worshipped, you called upon the name of that God in that place, and it became hallowed and sacred ground. You see what Abram's doing? You see what Abram's doing? Abram is reclaiming something that belongs to God for God. Doesn't belong to the Canaanites. Doesn't belong to the citizens of the town next to the oak at Moray. It belongs to the God of heaven and earth. And then he does the same thing. He builds another altar when he goes over near Bethel, between Bethel and Ai. He builds another altar. What's he doing? Remember what God said to Joshua when Joshua commissioned him to go in and take the land? He said, every place your foot steps, every place your foot goes is land that I will give to you and your descendants forever. Not just an altar here and an altar there, but every place the sole of your foot goes I will give to you. Again, let me encourage you to think in terms of this basic architecture of human history. Creation and then fall. And what happens as a result of the fall is that the whole of the creation is placed under a new Lord. You remember the scene, a great scene, in the second of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, when all of the armies of Saruman are destroying the lush and fertile vegetation of Middle-earth, burning it all up, raping the land, so that death and darkness now reign over what was once lush and beautiful. 
for reasons I can't even begin to comprehend, as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 8, the whole of the creation has been subjected to groaning and to death in hope of the liberation of the creation by the one who will liberate it. The same one who is the fulfillment of the promises first made to Abram. So from the time of the creation until the final consummation of all things, the creation labors under a master. A master that rather than blessing the creation, sustaining the creation, and he certainly does that in the midst of of what we see happening around us. You understand that? I do. I mean, I think you understand that the Lord is God and He's always God and He hasn't let go of His world. But for His reasons and His purposes, the whole of the creation is under another Lord. It's subjected to futility, Paul says. And so what is Abram doing? As Abram travels through the country, As Abram's foot goes from one place to the next, he puts up these altars, and basically what he's saying is, God, through me, is reclaiming what belongs to him with the final prospect that it will be delivered from its bondage at the end of human history. And where does it go from there? Creation, fall, redemption. We're in redemption Abram is building these altars as down payments, as promises of God's determination to liberate the whole creation from its curse. What happens after this is that Abram's descendants under the leadership of Moses and then Joshua occupy this land to make it what? A holy land. A land where the righteousness and the justice and the blessing of God are to be seen. A place where sandals don't wear out. A place where your clothing doesn't get threadbare. A place where people don't miscarry and where cows don't miscarry. You look at what is promised about this holy land and it clearly, it clearly looks like a reclamation project. But that piece of ground, this is the important thing to remember, that piece of ground is merely a beachhead for what God intends to do with the whole world. And that is reclaim the whole thing. Be satisfied in your thinking about eschatology. Don't be satisfied in your thinking about eschatology with the reclamation of one little piece of real estate at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. God's not satisfied with that. God is reclaiming the whole thing, and that is merely a beachhead, a place from which he extends his rule and reign out into the whole of the world so that at the end of the day he might bring to consummation all things in Christ, reclaiming everything. Abram building that altar there is God simply saying what Abram Kuyper said, less articulately than God to be sure, what Abram Kuyper said, the Free University of Amsterdam, when he said, there is not one square inch of the whole cosmos about which Jesus Christ does not say, this is mine, this belongs to me. And that is what God is saying to Abraham and through Abraham. I'm reclaiming what is mine, the whole world, in order to deliver it from its bondage. So that's the second thing. 
recollect, recollection, reclamation. And I'm, you know, you know that I've been captivated by this thing, and I'm more and more captivated by it all the time. That God's purpose involves the complete deliverance of everything that labors under the curse, restoring it to its original design, its original intent. And this building of an altar in this place is a down payment on that. So think about the building a little bit differently. Think about the building a little bit differently. Think about the building not just as a place where we'll gather for worship, not just as a place where we'll care for one another and have meals together and love one another and everything else, but think about that building on that property as another statement from God that the earth is the Lord's. And his intent at the end of the day is to reclaim it all for himself. Okay, so recollection, reclamation, and then third, reconciliation. The altar is not only a statement of ownership, if you will, but you know what altars signify. Altars are places where sacrifices are made. And so altars, particularly as you continue to think about them through the Old Testament, as, as Israel is constituted as a nation, as Israel is given a law by which to guide and direct her, to govern her, Israel is given laws pertaining to altars and a particular altar and a priestly caste and a sacrificial system. And what is the point of all of that? The point of all of that which is here in just emblematic form in Genesis chapter 12, the point of all of that is the reconciliation of God and man. That's what happens at altars. Sacrifices are made. Blood is shed. Lives are given over to death so that lives might be spared death. That's what happens at altars. And you know, don't you, you know so well and so clearly I trust that all of these altars across all of Old Testament history point in the direction of one final sacrifice, the place where God and his people are reconciled forever, the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I love thinking about this. I just love thinking about this. I love thinking about that building. You know what there will not be in that building? There will not be an altar. There will not be a place where sacrifices are made. It's just not good theology. Forgive me if I'm stepping on anybody's toes. It's just not good theology, not good biblical theology to refer to an altar in a place of worship on this side of the cross. Because there's one altar. Read Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't get it done. The blood of bulls and goats pointed to one thing, a final sacrifice, a final altar where a perfect sacrifice was slain, where blood was shed so that never, ever again would there be altars. 
And you know, the altars were behind curtains and the blood had to be taken into a place that was behind another curtain and everything was hidden. All of that communicating separation between God and His people. But when the final sacrifice is made on the final altar, you know what happens at the death of Christ. The curtain is torn. The altar's gone. The curtains are gone. Everything is opened up. And there is now permanent reconciliation between God and His people. So I think about that building there, and I can't wait. There will not be an altar behind me when I preach. And there should not be an altar behind anybody when they preach the gospel. The gospel should be out in the midst of the people, in front of the people, for the people to see. The altar is no longer an altar. It is now a table. And you know what you do at tables? You eat. You talk. You laugh. You have fellowship with each other. You delight in each other. And you know what I would love to do? I just thought about this this morning. When we build that building, we're going to put the communion table right out there where it belongs as a symbol, a a visual representation that the gospel means fellowship between God and His people. And you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to put an empty chair right next to it. For whom? For Jesus. The unseen host who by His death and by His shed blood makes fellowship with Him and with His Holy Father possible. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? A chair next to the communion table that nobody sits in except Jesus. Picturing for us the fact that we don't need altars anymore because we have been restored. We have been reconciled to our one true God. And so there is recollection here. And there is reclamation here. And there is reconciliation here. And then finally, there is restoration here. This is a fascinating thing. In this passage, the word bless occurs five times in verses 2 and 3. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless. I will bless. The word bless occurs five times total in Genesis 1 to 11. Five times total. And guess where the word bless occurs those five times? Three times in Genesis 1 and 2, as God blesses the creatures in Genesis 1.24, as he blesses the man and the woman in Genesis 1.28, and as he blesses the Sabbath in Genesis 2.4. He blesses the creatures. He blesses the man and the woman. And he blesses the Sabbath day. What is it to be blessed You read the creation, and in the creation, as the creation comes to its culmination and its close, the whole of the creation is pulsating with life and fruitfulness and abundance. We've made this observation before. When God, just as a little symbol, a little picture of that pulsating life, when God creates an apple tree, He doesn't create an apple tree with one seed so that they can multiply one by one. 
He creates an apple tree that has countless hundreds of apples with dozens and hundreds of seeds in the apples so that any single apple tree could give birth to a forest of apple trees pulsating with life and fullness and blessing. And the other two times that blessing occurs are after the flood. This is so, I wish I could talk about this for an hour. After the flood, when God, in chapter 9, verse 1, blesses the sons of Noah. What's happening there? You see what's happening? There is creation, and then there is dissolution. The creation came out of chaos because of sin in the fall. The creation is reduced to chaos and water and disorder and brokenness and everything else. And out of the chaos of the flood, out of those waters yet again, God preserves Noah and blesses Noah. He basically repeats the blessing that was first given to Adam and Eve. And what God is doing is he blesses Noah, in effect, is saying, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to preserve the integrity of the creation, and I'm going to preserve the integrity of the human family so that this chaos never comes again, and so that I can fulfill the first promise I made in Genesis 3.15 to overturn the works of darkness. It's a recreation. After creation and the chaos of the flood, it's a new creation, and God promises to bless it and preserve it until he completes it. And then the last time in those first 11 chapters where the word bless occurs is when Noah then, having heard the blessing of God, himself blesses the Lord. Five times in Genesis 1 through 11, but five times in Genesis 12, the word bless occurs. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. So what is God promising? God is promising the restoration, the final restoration through Abraham, through Abraham's seed who is Christ, through those who belong to Christ, through them out into the world until the consummation of all things. God is promising to restore the blessings of the garden. He's promising to restore that shalom. Shalom, which is more than peace, but is this experience of universal and pervasive and abundant well-being. I will bless you, God says to Abram. And that's the outcome of the story. Final fullness. Final blessedness, unimaginable blessedness pulsating with life. Now think about that building up there again. You and I both know the kind of world that we live in. It's broken, desperately broken, damaged, desperately damaged, filled with desperately damaged and desperately broken people. What is it that we long for to happen when we get into that building? What is it that we long to have happen here right now among us and in the midst of this county and out into the world? All we long for, what we pray for, what we work for, what we have to take so seriously in calling upon Christ is that people would simply taste, taste 
the realities of the blessedness that is coming. We're not going to know it fully here. It's always going to be mixed. People say, Mike, how are you doing? My answer is mixed. They say, how's life treating you? Not so well, but God is treating me wonderfully well. It's always mixed. But we want people to have tastes. Forgiveness for the guilty. Restoration for the broken. Liberation for those who are in bondage. Real tastes of mercy and kindness. The things that are characteristic of the kingdom of King Jesus and which will come to full expression at his final return. That's what we want people to taste. We want Psalm 34, a taste and see that the Lord is good. All of that, believe it or not, is in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. Remembering. Recollection. Reclamation. God is reclaiming a world that belongs to him. Reconciliation between God and people, God and human beings, God and sinners. And restoration, the final glorious, pulsating with life restoration of all things in Christ. That's what that building is about up there. That's what we're about here. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we fall so woefully short in our thinking about these things, in our living out the realities of these things. We need your mercy. We need your mercy and your power. We need your grace. We need your help. We need you to overcome things in us that we don't want you to overcome. We need you to change us in ways that we don't want to be changed. We need you to help us in ways that we don't want you to help us. We need your grace and favor at so many levels and in so many ways so that we, a congregation, might somehow be a taste of these future glories. So, Lord, have mercy upon us. Be with us. Prepare us. Lead us. Direct us. Give us what we need to be the presence of the risen Christ in the midst of this county. We pray for his sake and in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing number 580. Lead on, O King Eternal.